This is an AMI podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. From AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the way. 36 yards for the win. This. Here comes a big chance. The shot is. Is this the dagger? The neutral zone. This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host, two-time Paralympian, Rock Richardson. What's going on? It's time for another edition of The Neutral Zone. I am indeed your host, Brock Richardson. Coming up on today's show, we release another interview from the Canadian Paralympic Committee Summit. Today we hear from Megan Mahan, who is a Canadian goalball athlete from Timmins, Ontario. We also talk about the concept of whether professional athletes can run out of gas during a championship run. I'm joined by Josh Watson. Let's get into our headlines. Neutral Zone Headlines. Headlines. The Vegas Golden Knights win their first championship in NHL history in only their sixth year in the league. We also congratulate Jonathan Marcheseau for winning the most valuable player in the NHL Stanley Cup Final. One cool fact about him, he is one of the original six members of the Vegas Golden Knights to still be a part of the team. Congratulations, Vegas. It was a really exciting series. Moving on to the NBA, the Denver Nuggets win the NBA championship for the first time in franchise history. Along with winning the championship, Nikola Jokic wins the MVP in the NBA final. Former assistant GM for the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, Jason Spezza, will be joining the Pittsburgh Penguins. Why that's significant is because Kyle Dubas is the director of hockey operations now in Pittsburgh. Old friends reunite. Best of luck in Pittsburgh to both of you. Toronto Raptors star point guard Fred Van Vliet has decided to decline his $22.8 million player option for the upcoming 2023-2024 season. This will mean that as of July 1st, he will become a free agent. According to some in the know, there is still an opportunity for Toronto to re-sign Fred, but we will see what happens since he has indeed really... uh, released his option for next season. Good luck, Fred. As usual, he's choosing to bet on himself. I, you know, for me, I just wonder about whether or not if you decide to go to free agency and you're opting out of a player option that's your choice, should the Toronto Raptors bring you back? If you make that decision, you should... Just move on. I don't think if you as the player have decided you're going to opt out of that deal and it's your choice, I don't think the Raptors should have to pay you more money because you've opted out of your deal. Your thoughts on this? Well, I think ultimately what it comes down to is that this is just Fred deciding that either he doesn't, A, think that the money is enough anymore for what he's going to need to do for the team, or B... Maybe he's decided that he doesn't want to play under a new head coach with Toronto and wants to try and go somewhere else where he can possibly have a different role, a bigger role, maybe even a diminished role and just be a role player and not have to carry everything. 
it's it's definitely interesting um and and who knows i guess only time will tell whether it's the situation that he wanted out of or just felt like he deserved a bigger pay raise i understand the fact totally that you know times change but when you sign you know 22 you know million dollars at the time of your contract you know that's fine if you want to opt out but don't make it out like the Toronto Raptors are the leading candidate. And I'm not saying that Fred suggests that they're the leading candidate, but all the prognosticators that I've seen say Toronto Raptors or Phoenix Suns. If you weren't happy with the deal, opt out and move on to another team. It's that simple for me. Uh, Let's get into our actual chat segment as I went on a little bit of a tirade there for a few minutes. Just a little one. (laughs) (laughs) NBA star John Morant has learned his fate from the league after another incident involving a firearm. Let's take a listen to this clip. Memphis guard John Morant has been suspended for the first 25 games of the upcoming season for his second known incident of displaying what appeared to be a firearm on social media. The NBA announced the suspension on Friday. Morant will also have to adhere to certain conditions before being reinstated. It is the second time he has been suspended in the last three months for showing a firearm on social media following an eight-game suspension in March. Morant now stands to lose just over $300,000 per game during this suspension suspension or approximately 7.5 million. I'm Gethin Coolbaugh. So basically John Morant has been suspended for 25 games in what they're calling a second incident for showing a firearm in a bar um, and the league has decided that they're going to you know suspend him. They gave him an initial suspension first when this happened over a year ago and I just think that he should suffer, not suffer, that's the wrong word. He should have a little bit more of a suspension rather than the 25 games. And I should say that he's 23 years old. And so that, to me, plays a bit of a factor in this as well. Your thoughts? I think, excuse me, I definitely think that there is a maturity issue here. Uh, Most people once they reach a certain level of maturity, understand that you're a role model and perhaps you shouldn't be seen on Instagram or any other social media waving a gun around in a club. But at some point, the league has to do what the league has to do. And this is the second time. And clearly you haven't learned from the first time. Um, I've heard rumors through media that there have been other more minor incidents that kind of led up to this sort of thing in terms of other other things he said or things he's done. So unfortunately, the league has to come down on him. And I mean, 25 games isn't a small suspension, but at the same time, for a second offense... Exactly. For for a second offense, for the same offense, I can totally see your point. It just doesn't seem quite right. It doesn't seem quite strong enough. Now, there was a rumor, which I think you're going to touch on here, and forgive me for stealing your thunder, but uh, there was a rumor that he was going to be suspended for the entire season. That might be a little too excessive, because you do need stars like Morant in the league to generate 
revenue and to to keep the league front of mind for for fans. But at some point, these players, whether they want to or not, have to understand that they are role models and they do need at least to act accordingly or make sure that the uh, phones and cameras are, are put away when they decide to have their fun. The, I'll close with this thought. The fact is, is that your own personal time is your own personal time. But in today's world, in today's day and age of social media, bosses in any um, field, in this case we're talking sports obviously, but they they have the right to look at what's going on uh, in someone's life. Um, I have all of, some of, not all of, but some of the people that I'm connected to at AMI and most of the things that I post are related to sports it kind of gets probably boring for those people that's like oh there he goes again sports guy putting another sports thing up but i accept those people in my world because i know that i'm not going to do something untoward something that goes against the belief of of my organization and or when i was an athlete the organization that i was a part of and that's the thing as an athlete you need to sort of have that second and third gear that goes, hmm, should I or shouldn't I be doing this? And I, I mentioned this on uh, one of my hits earlier in the week. I said, the only thing you guys are going to see from my vacation is the copious amounts of food that I'm going to, you know, take in on my cruise coming up. But that's about it. <laughs> There'll be no pointing of any weapons or anything like that. And I think you just take the risk in who you add on social media, but it's not even about who you add and don't. Today's world allows bosses to check in on what you're doing. And I think John Morant, as a 23-year-old, needs to take ownership of that. And I'm not sure 25 games, 30 games, 40 games, 80 games is really going to make the difference. I think if you're going to learn your lesson, you're going to learn it with whatever punishment they decide to give you. What we're going to give you right now is how you can get a hold of us on social media. And welcome back to the Neutral Zone AMI broadcast booth. And we are set to get this ball game underway. The first pitch brought to you by Brock Richardson's Twitter account at NeutralZoneBR. First pitch, strike. And hey, gang, why not strike up a Twitter chat with Claire Buchanan for the Neutral Zone? Find her at NeutralZoneCB. And there's a swing and a chopper out to second base. Right at Claire, she picks up the ball, throws it over to first base for a routine out. And fans, there is nothing routine about connecting with Cam and Josh from the Neutral Zone. At Neutral Zone, Cam J and at J Watson 200. Now that's a winning combination. And this Oregon interlude is brought to you by AMI-audio on Twitter. Get in touch with the Neutral Zone. Type in at AMI-audio. We release another Canadian Paralympic Committee interview from the summit I did a couple of months ago. This time we speak with goalball athlete Megan Mahan from Timmins, Ontario. Please enjoy the interview. So in 2015, I understand you were part of the uh, junior national team, which won a gold medal. How do you believe that shaped your career into what it is today? Yeah, I think that tournament uh, being my first international experience and at a junior level, um, I was able to be a leader on that team, which I think helped with me just developing the sense of leadership that I have. Um, now a veteran on the senior level team uh, and just really falling in love with the sport again and at a new international level. Is there something that a coach 
said to you at that time that you think in certain moments such and such a coach said X to me and that still carries through to you? Um, I think that it wasn't necessarily um, in that moment, but it's always been my coach from high school, actually. It wasn't even necessarily a para coach um, who, before every tournament, um, still sends me a message. You know, she's a high school teacher, and I know her grade 12 biology class learned a lot about goalball when we were at Worlds, and it's just um, her continued support that kind of gives me that push when times are times are a little tough yeah i totally understand that and times do get tough as a para-athlete there's no doubt about that would you say that when you get messages from her that that sort of gives you the fuel of like man i still have the support of this individual and it means so much to me yeah absolutely um i mean in 2019 um she traveled down to fort wayne indiana during her summer break to come and watch a tournament um, and be able to just watch me play in person as opposed to on a screen. Um, and there's other athletes who are coming up in that same school system that goalball could be a potential um, in their futures. So it's something knowing as well that she continues to support not only the sport, but the fact of um, para sport just as a whole that really just keeps me going to know that there are other kids who are coming coming forward and gives me um, reason to again push and keep going. Did you ever expect that one individual in your life would have such an impact beyond family? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know it's it was always said that your high school coaches are sometimes the coaches who stick around with you the most. Um, and I definitely understand that. And I think that it's, you know, now I couldn't see any of my athletic career um, really being as big as it is without her. She was the first one who got me involved when I was um, doing athletics in high school in competing against para-athletes and really introducing me to a world of para-sport when all I knew for the most part was able body sport. I think uh, junior teams or B teams, if you want to call it that, can be something that as athletes we take for granted because we itch so much that we want to get into the big show. Why did you believe that the junior national team was that place that you shouldn't just, ah, this is just the junior national team who cares? I want to get to the big show. Um, I think at that point, I was still fairly, excuse me, I was still fairly new to the sport. Um, you know, I had only really been playing for two years. Uh, so for me, in that moment, that kind of was the big show. Um, I didn't think that, or even know that 2016 in Rio would be an option for myself. So it really was just that next big step and. Um, that opportunity that I had to wear the Maple Leaf, you know, anytime I get the opportunity to wear the Maple Leaf, whether it be at a big tournament that's worldwide or just at, you know, an invitation with four teams, it's something that I take with extreme pride and um, no matter what level. 
it's my understanding that you wear the number four on the court. And, you know, sometimes numbers can be just that thing you go, okay, this is a number, I'll put this on, and, you know, we go on about our life. Was there a significance to the number four, or was it just purely, ah, it's a number, I put it on? Yeah, so in Global, um, we don't have much to choose from. Our numbers only go from one to nine. Those are your choices. Um, I, my first, the first team when I played for um, Ontario at the Junior Nationals um, was the number four. So it's just kind of the first number I started with. When I joined um, the national team in 2016, there was another player who was wearing four. So I actually didn't start the national program with that number. Um, I started with eight, which I felt was four plus four, so it all worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then once that athlete retired and uh, the first opportunity, I was able to switch my number back to four. You know, athletes are creatures of habit and we just have to do the same thing. Coaches preach routine all the time. It almost becomes annoying, at least in my career. I found it to be, oh God, we're talking about routine again? Oh yeah. But what is that thing for you? It's like, I have to do this in order to feel comfortable on the court and know that I'm in the mode that I'm in to compete at a high level? Yeah, so for myself, um, when we talk about on court in competition days, we do have it kind of ironed out to a very specific um, warm up. Usually once we're announced and we're um, walked in, we have about 12 minutes to do a warm up and then the starters will put on the eye patches at about seven minutes. So we really don't have a ton of time. Um, but for myself, I will do slides on the side of the court um, while my teammates are throwing and things like that. And I just repeat the same things, um, kind of like um, affirmations as I'm doing these slides that I'm confident, um, I have the skill, I have the technique, and just getting those being one of the last things I think about. And then it's for myself, it's also feeling the center T um, and just basically centering myself with our side of the court. And this can be, um, this is usually after I've got my eye shades on. I just make sure I go and feel that tea and know where I am. One of the coolest things that I saw when uh, preparing for this was you were honored with a banner from your hometown. And I've never been honored with a banner <laughs> anywhere. Uh, so tell me about that. When that came to be, what's the first thing that goes through your head? That it was super cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I am very fortunate to come from a small town where everyone kind of growing up knew who I was. Um, not many individuals in my community um, grew up with sight loss. Um, my mom did a great job of just giving my brother and I, who also has sight loss, um, the opportunities to do whatever we wanted and to just be out there and be in our communities. Um, so when that happened, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, it was, I think it was exceptionally cool for, for my mom, who is my biggest fan, um, to just kind of see that and see her kid's name up on there. Um, they, in tow with the large banner, they also posted 
flags of my face Oops. on every lamppost. <laughs> um, so I was getting pictures um, and everything like that. And I, I received the one message from my old high school coach who, you know, she said I had to pull over and wipe the tears as I drove into town and saw these because um, those who have been a part of my journey for so long, I think it was a really cool moment for them to see and for me to know that even though I wasn't at the time residing in that community, um, that they were still fully supportive of the entire journey that I was um, taking on. There's always a moment where we step back in our career and we say, I've done this, I've done it, I'm here, this is where it is. As I listen to you talk about the banner, for me, that would be the moment where it's like, oh my goodness, my face is on a banner. This is real. Was that it for you or was there another moment in your career where you knew this is real, I'm going to do something with this and be successful at it? Um, I don't think it was the banner. I felt it was really weird having my face posted all around and like getting photos of my own face posted. Um, for me, I think it was really during the games um, when all of a sudden I went from, this is my first major national team competition outside of the junior level. Um, and I became the first choice in the center position for our coach. And I was able to, you know, I was supposed to only just be a sponge and absorb everything that was going on. And all of a sudden I'm on the court with two veterans who have been to multiple Paralympics and it was just time to play. And I think that was my moment where I realized that I think it was, it was bigger than I could ever, ever put into words. Uh, you know, for me, you spoke about family a couple of minutes ago and you need that support system. You need that proud mom moment, the proud dad moment, the proud brother moment, sister, whatever. Uh, tell me about your family networks. What have they meant to you and where you are today? Yeah, they're huge. Um, my mom raised my brother and I as a single mom and having two kids with disabilities, I couldn't even imagine the obstacles that she was facing. You know, I remember her putting up a fight and not letting go with the city to put an accessible audible stoplight so that we could independently walk ourselves the three blocks to school. Um, and really just being there to tell us that we can do it and we can find a way to do it. Um, between her and my grandpa, they were just the ones who, no matter what, would get us there, um, would get us to practices. I remember my mom, it's my brother and I were kids, running one of us to hockey while the other one was being run to gymnastics and then picking up one from one venue and dropping them off at the next one. and. Um, really just making sure that we knew that there was no limitations possible and then continuing on. I mean, it's not easy for my family um, that I live across the country. It's, you know, a full travel day if we want to go either way. And uh, I've missed birthdays, I've missed Christmases, I've missed any kind of celebration, but my family is so understanding and just so supportive in everything um, that I'm doing that they're fully 
understanding as much as it's hard for everyone. Um, they're fully understanding that this is currently the road that I'm on and sometimes it means making those sacrifices. There's always that moment in life where your parents use the words, I'm proud of you. And sometimes it comes out because that's what parents feel in this moment. I got an A on this test and they put it on the fridge and, and they do this whole proud thing. But then in our careers as Paralympians, there is always that moment where one of the people we love comes up to us and says, Megan, I'm proud of you. And it really means something more than just the words. Tell me about that moment for you. I, you know, growing up in a, in a tough kind of farming family, those words don't come out as words all the time. Um, you know, they come out as actions or they come out as things. And I know, um, you know, my mom could not be prouder. And I think the, when um, I was selected for the team for Rio and she was just posting photos. I mean, she went and put balloons up with my banner on opening ceremonies day. And she would stream my games in her office and you know, have the entire office just sitting there watching my games. And it's not necessarily the words, I'm proud of you that have come that really mean something, but it's those actions of, I, I know by what she does. And, you know, my grandpa, my whole team knows who my grandpa is because <laughs> he posts on everything and reposts all, our, all of our stuff um, and is always there to comment and bring us up when we lose. You know, he's always that one who's saying, you got the next one. And it's, it really is those moments that um, aren't just a one-time thing. They're continuous and they continue to show me that um, they're proud of everything that I'm pursuing in my Paralympic career. If we were to do this interview in a year's time and I was to show you this interview and you were to tell yourself where you want to be in a year's time headed into the next Paralympic Games, what would you tell yourself today that if I showed it to you, you'd say, I, I got where I wanted to be? First off, I want to be qualified for Paris. <laughs> um, that's the big one. Um, but I think... I really want to be that athlete that has a well-rounded presence, um, you know, not just physically on the court, but as a teammate um, off the court in our daily training environments at home or at a tournament. Um, I want to be that athlete who is mentally strong as well as physically strong and who is able to push through all of those things. Um, as you know, just taking them as another event that's happened, as opposed to letting them break me down. Um, yeah, I think I think just being that all-around, uh, well-rounded athlete. You know, I don't I don't know where my career will take me after Paris, so that's that's where I want to be before. So, one of the things that I just admire about goalball is that it, people just give up their bodies, and it's like. <laughs> Why, why would you want a ball to just come flying in your direction and, and put yourself in the way of, the, of it to stop it? Can you talk about what that feeling is like when that ball really gets you and it's like, yes, I did it, I'm, this is great? Yeah, I think you just learn to almost accept it. 
Um, you know, there's, there are those shots where as soon as they're thrown, you know they're coming hard. Um, and as an athlete and as a goalball athlete, you want them to hit you because if they're not hitting you, it's likely they're going in the net. Um, so it really is like when someone gets a really nice ball off or there's a really big bounce shot and it hits you, it's that feeling of, okay, I just took that shot. I really can do anything. I mean, it physically at the time your adrenaline's going and you really don't feel each hit. Um, you know, I even look at, there's many times where you block the ball with your face unintentionally and your eye shades go flying and the next one you're back out there throwing your body in front of it. So it really is just taking each ball one at a time and being able to, when those, those really nice throws are coming or the ones that um, are maybe hitting you in a spot that you don't know if your range could have gotten there and you block them, it's a really satisfying feeling. What does a day like today mean to you and the whole Paralympic movement as a, as a global thing? Yeah, to me, um, the Paralympic movement in itself is something that for the first 15 years of my life, I didn't know about. Um, as a larger scale, I mean, yes, you heard about, you know, the Paralympics and things like that, but it wasn't something that I ever saw of grassroots programs. Um, you know, I just thought these athletes are incredible and they're out there doing their thing, but there's so much more behind it where we really are supporting these uh, para-athletes from the grassroots and supporting community programs and being able to just make equipment accessible to athletes um, or potential athletes or kids who just want to be active. There's so many different levels um, and a day like today where we're really able to just get our stories out there and there's so many different athletes here that the hope is that every single person living with a disability out there could potentially relate to at least five seconds of someone's story or five seconds of you know, what someone is sharing or who somebody is and that can give them the motivation to really just be out there, put themselves out there, break their own barriers and get involved. Love it. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this. We greatly appreciate it. And I feel like I've done my job when you said to me, middle of the interview, you're getting me emotional. So <laughs> checkmate for me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was Megan Mahan from Timmins, Ontario, who is a Paralympic goalball athlete. We thank her for her time and efforts at the summit. If you like what you heard in the interview, please give us a call at our voicemail, which can be found right here. If you want to leave a message for the Neutral Zone, call now, 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air. Let's get ready to leave a voicemail! One of the things that we've done on this program uh, as of late is uh, give you some of the updates that have occurred at the uh, international tournament that is happening in Dubai, which is the uh, World Championships for Wheelchair Basketball. Let me tell you, first of all, where we are at since we've last joined you. So uh, when we look at the uh, men's side of things, they uh, lost in the quarterfinals. And then that means that you go into a play-in 
tournament. I put tournaments in quotes for a reason. Let me explain this. So anyone that does not qualify for the semifinals, so five through eight, they play a little tournament. They would play two games where you would then, if you won, you would go on and play for the five versus six game. And if you lost, you would go on and play for the seven versus eight. These tournaments, Josh, I when we got into these five versus eight, six versus this, it just became so almost hard to handle because it was like we lost. We we didn't get this done. We lost. It's too bad. And then you got to bring yourself up to play in a in a game that matters for placing, but it really doesn't matter in the tournament anymore. I don't know if you've had experience in playing in these kinds of things. I have, and it's awful. Your thoughts before I give the actual results of what's gone on. Yeah, placing games are always challenging. You get to a point where you realize you're not going to be in that top four. You're not going to be in a semifinal. And you just kind of feel like, well, tournament's over. The the goal is not going to be met. And you're right. It is incredibly hard to get up for those games because usually, at least in the sports that I have been involved with where this is a thing, which would be para ice hockey, you're beat up, you're sore, you're tired. You've probably played four or five or six games in a course of a few days and the last thing you really want to do is get into one of these games where you you have to really fight to remember the the prize at the end of it essentially yeah i'm gonna give you the uh, results before i get talking more about this format uh, that i don't mm-hmm. like um <laughs> so we're gonna if we look at the uh, men's situation uh they uh won their game against the italians uh 56 uh s- sorry they lost their game against the italians uh 67 uh 56 which means that they uh then were in the sixth place uh situation so they are uh sixth out of 16 is the final result there for them. Uh, then if we look at the women's side of things, uh, they won their game against uh, Australia, which is interesting because that's one of the games they lost, and that game was 64-62. So this is good. Wow. Uh, close game, but again, this is one of those games that they would look back on and say, man, if we only won in the round robin against them, then things would have been a little different. Uh, it's kind of good to get revenge, but not in this way, because it's kind of like, ah, oh, we we get fifth, and we could have been higher. Uh, they lost a game mm-hmm. to the Spanish squad earlier in the tournament that they could have won as well. So these are the two games that they could have done uh, different results, which would have brought them, brought them through. They had a really tough game in the quarterfinals against the... Uh, Netherlands and in the broadcast they kept saying oh this was a matchup that was supposed to be a semi-final or a final and sometimes when you lose two games in this situation uh, this can make the difference and this can make the difference between playing somebody in a quarterfinal versus a uh, semi-final or a final I will tell you this 
that I didn't agree with what they did on the men's side, and I'll tell you why. So the men had 16 uh, teams all together. Right. And they they decided to do a round of 16, which is normal-ish in some sports. And they did a round of 16. Obviously, Canada won their first game in the round of 16, which led them to be in the quarterfinals. Um, but then in the women's side, they had 12 teams, of which they got rid of four of them before moving on to the knockout stage. Your thoughts on this, and I'm kind of going down a, a, a dangerous kind of rabbit hole with this one, but your thoughts on why we didn't eliminate any men's teams versus we eliminated uh, four women's teams. Did you like this format? Dislike it? What did you think? To be honest, I'm still scratching my head about it. I find it very hard to believe that there wasn't 16 teams on the women's side of things that they could have brought to this tournament. So I'd, I'd like to figure out why there were only 12 teams, first of all. Second of all, if you're going to have 16 teams on the men's side and have them all go through, then why would you not have all of them go through on the women's side? It just... It, it's very perplexing to me. I, I don't quite understand the reason behind this This sort of... Like, it's very, very confusing because you would think that whatever you do on the men's side, you would automatically do on the women's side. And that just that didn't happen. So I'm very confused. The only thing that I would say, and I agree with you, I, I can't imagine that there wasn't... 16 teams that could have gone to these championships in fact i'm almost positive there are more than you know 12 teams in the world on the women's side um and i just thought that this was strange the when i when i tried to look this up josh i tried to find out from the international wheelchair basketball federation why this was going on and of course they didn't respond to me i wasn't really expecting a response but i thought I would try and I googled it and you know worked on this frantically I could not get a straight response um I I'll be honest and say that I think this is a combined event so you're looking at men's teams being there as well as women's teams and although you're not you're not crossing paths you're well aware of what's going on with your men's or women's team or vice versa sure. and to me if if I'm on the women's team I'm looking at this a little puzzled going, okay, so you decided not to do a, a round of 16 with us or bring 16 teams, but you did one with them. And then to double down, you decided not to do, you know, a a 12 team, you know, playoff, which the last time I checked, 12 is divisible equally. So you could have done, you know, six matchups and you could have called it a day. I would have been less inclined to come on here and say well okay this is weird that they did a, a 12 team you know quarter final if you will right um because you don't see that in sports but it leaves me a little bit of a less bitter taste if you left it with the 12 teams versus saying to the men yeah you guys have four additional teams and we'll just let it let it be that way and let you play it out i to me that just doesn't doesn't seem right. So there was a bit there that uh, I didn't quite like, but them's the breaks. These are the decisions 
that are made within sports and some people like them, some people don't. And I have to say to go back on the uh, five, five through eight sort of format, right. we did that in bocce for a long time. Okay. And then a bunch of us on the committee said, we don't like this. We, we don't like this format. It's, it's challenging to get up for a game like this. Can we just take the, the uh, four quarterfinals and whoever has the most spread, like if someone lost, you know, say 6-2 versus 4-3, well, the person that lost 6-2 would, you know, inevitably finish lower than the person who lost 4-3. Right. And that to me is what what we did. And some of the argument is, well, you know, X country traveled so far and we want to give them games. I hear all that. But the placement games are really hard to get up for yeah. and really hard to do. And I just – there's things in this tournament that I just scratch my head and I go, mm, this is this is not good. I don't like this. I will say I loved the broadcast. I could get every game streamed on, on the IWBF. Uh, CBC Gem did a wonderful job, which you don't see a lot with all the sports. And I keep teasing this. I promise <laughs> it's coming. We're going to talk about – whether we're, you know, respecting or disrespecting parasports by doing the things we do um, in in the coming weeks. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things. So credit the IWBF for streaming every single game and broadcasting it properly, but their formatting was just a little bit weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to move on, Josh, unless sure. you had any other comment there. No, no, I don't think so. Unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to watch this tournament, so I'm... I'm comfortable with where we're at, I think. That's fair. I wanted to bring up another point here. And this one's talking about sports in general. Um, the the Canadian women had uh, five games in their round robin, and they ended up playing these games, uh, five games over six nights. Uh, and it got me thinking about championship runs and watching the Florida Panthers really make this sort of Cinderella run and run through and all this. And you kind of sort of see teams crash. So let's start with, do you think professional sports teams can get to a point where they literally say, we're done, we're out of gas, and that's it? I'll agree to a point. So so what I would say is a professional team or, or really any team that even I've been a part of as an amateur... You never come out and say, we're done. You always say, no, no, we want to play. We're ready to play. We're, we're good to go. Meant, meant to, absolutely. Pucks in deep, here absolutely. we go. The, but in your locker room, in, in your own mind, you know whether you have anything left in the tank. I will play in a hockey tournament in Brampton or London or wherever it happens to be. And by the time we hit the, the medal round of the tournament, I just want to go home to bed. <laughs> I'm so tired. And I'm only playing in like four games in two days, five, six games in three days, maybe. I can't even imagine doing five games in four nights and all that pressure and all of that, that just, yeah, pressure that, that comes along with playing in an international game and having to be be up for that many many games in a row it's just it it's part i think of what makes our fandom of sports what it is 
We want to see the warriors. We want to see those guys that you know are exhausted. The, the guys that you know have given everything that they have to win that trophy. And I think that's why you see the elation on their faces when they do finally win it. Because it's been a gauntlet. It's been an absolute gauntlet. And you always, especially hockey, you always hear about all the injuries that guys have after they get put out. And you think to yourself, you played through a broken sternum? Like, how? Yeah. I mean, I I was an athlete for a number of years. And if I had a broken anything... I am not playing. Yeah. I mean, it's nope. uh, and and nope. call me what you want. Call call me a big baby. Nope. That's fine. But a broken sternum, like when you hear things like that, it's just like wow. Like this is the level yeah. to which you went to to play for you know the Stanley Cup or cite the sport, whatever it is. This is the level you went Absolutely. to and you did. And to me, I look at that and I say, well, good on you because I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't do that. And I would put a lot mm-hmm. on the line for my country. I would, you know, sacrifice my social life. I would sacrifice diets, mm-hmm. which believe me, sacrificing diets was hard to do. But <laughs> sacrificing yes, my body is. because I had a broken bone or because I, whatever happened, mm-hmm. you know, the injury, um, it's hard, you know, like. I had a concussion in my career and, and I couldn't play for weeks. I couldn't train. I couldn't do any of that. Now I understand we're talking about a head injury versus a a broken bone. I totally get it. Yes. But it's just, it's the level to which people will say, I've dreamt about this. I want to hoist Lord Stanley's cup. I want to hoist the the Larry OB. I want to host, hoist all of it. And I want to do it because I've lived and I've breathed and I've done this. And this is this is the way athletes are, and we're programmed to be different. But some of us are programmed on a level that others just wouldn't uh, get to. Exactly. Um, the other side of this that I wanted to ask you about was para athletes. As I mentioned okay. at the beginning of all this, you know they played uh, uh, many games, five games in six nights, and it was a lot. It was a lot of games, a lot of time. To be, to be had, do you think the disability has another level to this when we talk about stamina? Or am I literally throwing something where you're like, meh, that's just an excuse. What say you on this? I absolutely think that disability does play a factor, but I think if you talk to an athlete who is, particularly in a team sport, if you talk to an athlete who who does have a disability and who does play at that level they will try to tell you otherwise. I I truly believe they will try to tell you, no, no, it's not a factor. It's it's my conditioning and, and I'm fine and I can do this. But I just, I know myself that I just, I get to a point and my brain wants to do it and my body just says, no, absolutely not. We are done. We are going to just, we're we're going to break if you keep this up. So I really think it does depend on the disability because there are some disabilities that just take more out of people than than others. I happen to have spina bifida and I think I probably am able to push a little more and push through a little more fatigue than others are. 
I don't know that for a fact, but that's that's just my personal thought. Yeah, I I, I mean, there's no you know perfect um, science to this at all. Like I have cerebral palsy, and we we struggled. You know, we when we were playing back to back games or you know three games in the same day, even if one game was sort of you know at the top of your day, and then you'd have one middle of the day and the end of the day. I got to be honest, Josh, and tell you that games at the end of the day were really, really hard because my father always told me that my body was like one cord. And when when one thing started to go, everything goes. Sometimes I'm sure when you're watching this on uh, YouTube and you see as I'm getting passionate about something, my body raises and raises and raises and so does my voice as we do that. And I think with cerebral palsy, that's one of the things that happens is that, you know, um, your body just gets so tired because even, even the, the muscles that you're not using are, or you think you're not using are still being used, even though you're not, uh, attempting to use them. And so to me, I think that that's, that's the difference too. I think, you know, coaches spend time and they'll say, Oh, you know, you, uh, we want you to have, stamina and I think wheelchair basketball athletes are among the best to to do to have stamina and to do that uh, para ice hockey players same thing but there are just some sports that you just simply it's harder and some disabilities to do that um, well, are just challenging mm -hmm. and I mean don't sell yourself short either here I mean I've had a chance to watch Baji both on on television and in real life so to speak and it's it's a very mentally taxing sport, whereas, I mean, I, I'm a goaltender in a, a para-ice hockey team. My job is basically to follow the little black puck and make sure that I can, you know, stop it when it comes to me. That doesn't take the same mental energy that it does to, to look at, okay, my opponent is taking this shot, and if he does this, then I have to do this, and if he does that, then I have to do this over here, and I just, like, I watch it and just go, like, okay you guys are you guys are smarter than me because i can't keep up so so let's not forget the mental energy that things take as well because that is a factor as well yep, absolutely and i think with the uh faster sports um coaches have more um opportunity to call timeouts and to 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 slow their team down and and to do that and and change things around and now in bocce you know they now have the ability to have uh timeouts between the ends we didn't other than you know just picking up the equipment bringing it back and and doing that and so i think over time sports has grown to understand disability and to understand um how people work and tick and do that the Canadian women's team has uh, Marnie Adams Peters, who is uh, their coach, and she's also in a wheelchair. And I really think that that brings a different level to that. When you have an able body coach, no matter how talented that person is, no matter how skilled they are in the sport of wheelchair basketball or name the sport, right? you, you bring yourself to the level of the person just by simply having the disability and understanding what's going th through the minds. I'm not saying that Miss Peters is not going to be going to be tough on on her team, but I do think there's a point at which you realize, 
okay, I need to reason with this person on this level because this is what might may be happening in their brain right now, and I need to put a put a sort of a stop to it and be there to be supportive. And I don't think an able-bodied coach, as much as they're skilled, talented, all those things, I just don't think an able-bodied coach can can be with you on that same level because they haven't lived in breathe the situation yeah i can see that that would be a point for sure i think that some of the best coaches whether they be able-bodied or disabled will actually take the time to put themselves in their athlete's shoes so for example if you are a para ice hockey coach and you don't play or you don't have a history playing para ice hockey you will at least get yourself into a sled and skate around the ice and shoot the puck and maybe strap on the goal as you should to to make sure that you you understand the fatigue and and what muscles are are being taxed by these these sports so i i do think being a disabled coach in a para sport is an advantage but i also think that the best coaches will find ways of understanding their athletes and where they're coming from as well and I think that's that's really important, the understanding of where you get to and taking the time to sit and speak with the athletes. It's it's not I, – I love the idea of, you know, going and, and, and doing the sport, but you also have to sit and spend time with each and every athlete because everyone's different. Every situation is different. Every person this, – this joke might make this person laugh – when they're in the middle of it, you need to have that. And the best coaches that I had throughout my careers would be the ones that would literally take the time and say, come on, let's have a meeting and sit down and, and talk to you about life. I, my, my favorite thing with all of my coaches was the ones that would sit down and say, before they give you any of the good feedback, bad feedback, anything, they'd sit down and they'd say, how's life? What's happening in life? What's going on? What all this sort of thing. And to me, yeah. that's the greatest difference because you build a bond with a coach like no other. They are with you sometimes more than others in your family and your friend circles. So uh, really great. And even though it might not have been the results that everybody wanted to still be, you know, fifth and sixth in the world is still an accomplishment. And I know that the para Pan Ams are around the corner and things will be a lot different uh, because we've had a history of winning the para Pan Am. Uh, championships in wheelchair basketball and a lot of sports to be perfectly honest with you so when it's there and that's a direct qualifier that's a good thing what i can tell you now is that's the end of our show for this week i'd like to thank josh watson i'd also like to thank marco follow our technical producer ryan delahanty is the podcast coordinator tune in next week because you just never be well 